Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. A couple of announcements before we jump into the void. Like all things in life, my plans about how I would structure the podcast platform, website, etc. has changed. But you know, plans are made to change and um, we make them on our ideas and concepts of how things will be rather than how things actually are. So I need to yield now to right view of how things are. I originally thought I would provide full transcripts for each podcast show, and if you follow my website, you know that I uploaded full transcripts up until episode, well, up through episode four. I used an AI or artificial intelligence service to to transcribe the podcast files, and although it was a great service for a relatively inexpensive price compared to uh, full-on human transcription, You know, there's still a bit of editing that needs to be done. And, well, it's time-consuming. And since there's only one of me devoting as much time as I have to, you know, produce content, record content, edit content, distribute the show, editing editing those transcriptions put me over the limit of the boundaries of time that I had. I did have a listener reach out to me to say she loved the transcripts and learned so much from her printing and reviewing them, and to her, I apologize. And I have a Facebook friend who is seemingly podcast-averse and who can only absorb through reading, and to him, I also apologize. Although he won't be hearing this, will he? But anyway, I still have dreams of creating downloadable full-text PDFs of each episode, as you may have seen written on my website. But for now, I have to put those ideas aside. It may be offered as giveaways or premium content at some point, but let's just see how things happen. Until then, I will continue to include a brief show intro for each show that I've continually done anyway and still try to upload a longer show overview instead of full transcripts for each episode. I I record them, and I transcribe them, so I do have them as transcripts. It's just uh, the the time limit of of processing them to get them available for you in their full content. So keep watching. It's a work in process and a work in progress. The good news, though, for all those who like to read content and maybe prefer it over listening— I have added a blog section to my website, and I'm slowly uploading blog and article content I've written over more than 10 years. So I've given, not just taken away. And speaking of giving, I'm still working on creating other offerings for subscribers of my website, like membership groups for hangouts or a special Ask Anything section spiritual friendship coaching services, and I'm also toying with starting a Facebook group or a YouTube channel, as time permits. So if there's anything you'd like to see that would help you in your every everyday journey, you know, reach out, let me know. 
And don't forget to join my website mailing list to keep posted on any announcements and new releases. So, okay, enough housekeeping. On with the subject of this podcast. You know, a funny thing happened on the journey from episode 10 of Right Livelihood to this episode, which I had originally intended being, of course, the next step on the Eightfold Path, which was right, which is right effort. I just haven't gotten to it yet. But, you know, I started reading a Kindle book I grabbed from a Kindle Daily Deals offer. It was so engaging from just the title and the blurbs that I jumped right in. It's an Indie Book Award winner, and it's called The Wisdom of Not Knowing, Discovering a Life of Wonder by Embracing Uncertainty by Estelle Frankel. You know, Frankel is a psychotherapist, spiritual advisor, and practitioner in the Jewish mysticism found in the Kabbalah. And in this book, she weaves insights from her Jewish mystical tradition, but also Buddhism and psychoanalysis. A review from Publishers Weekly wrote, as Americans leave traditional faith, publishers release books to give them alternatives. In the wisdom of not knowing, Estelle Frankel, a therapist who also teaches Jewish mysticism, talking too fast here today. Okay, I'll continue with that quote. Jewish mysticism proposes that psychological, emotional, and spiritual health depend on accepting how much in life cannot be known and that it is important to have the courage to face uncertainty and ambiguity. The author Estelle Frankel writes in her acknowledgments that it was in fact Zen Buddhist writings by Norm Fisher on Beginner's Mind and a Dharma talk titled Not Knowing is Most Intimate that planted the seed for her to write the book. So in turn, I will thank Estelle Frankel for inspiring me to talk about my love for koans. In this episode, I've entitled Koans reaching the limits of thought, jumping into the void of I don't know. I love koans because they are one of the rarest practices for messing with your conceptual mind and shaking your false trust in the perceived stability of what we think is knowledge. You know, in the book's introduction, Frankel quotes the historian and author Daniel Borston, who wrote, The greatest obstacle to discovery is not ignorance. It is the illusion of knowledge. And that, I think, is what Buddhism talks about as ignorance, the illusion of knowledge. I love that. And I think it could be the best one-liner I would use to describe why Buddhism works in making my life better, my life easier. And also, I think it's the best description of right view, which is the first step on the path Gautama Buddha prescribed. It also gets at the heart of what I started seeking in philosophy and religion, even as a young person. I have been consistently drawn throughout my life to the thing that can't be named. You know, the thing that feels like the bigger you, the thing that's beyond or underneath your thoughts whenever you're able to catch a glimpse of it. I believe we've all touched that that thing, whatever it is, that unnameable, unknowable, 
something at some point in our lives. Doing something, whatever it is, whether it's meditation or being lost in music or nature or being lost in your work or in an art or a craft or in sports. But the trouble with most of us, we've touched it and it inspired a wonderful feeling of flow or insight or motivation or peace, but we don't remember it. And we don't remember to do the thing that creates it. Or we get far, far too busy with all the things we have to do. And this is, I think, where the working with koans can be helpful. Being drawn into questions without the comfortable ground of quote-unquote knowing offers another practice that can help you pause in your everyday in your everyday mad rush to stress and anxiousness caused by trying to be somewhere other than where you are at the very moment. You know, over the years, I've had an on and off again devotion to koans. And in January 2006, as, you know, sort of a New Year's resolution, I took a deep dive again into koan practice. And I offered a few articles on LinkedIn tying koans to everyday work life. So for that 2016 practice, and in practices even before that, and after that actually, I meditated on koans using the book Zen Koans by Reverend Gilme Kabose, the father of my teacher, Reverend Koyo Kabose. And Gyome is also the founder of our school and center, the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism. So as a transition from my last podcast on Right Livelihood, I will share what I shared with my LinkedIn readers there in January, February, March 2016. Um, my LinkedIn readers are primarily interested in career and work issues. A Zen koan is, in essence, a problem that can't be solved by the intellect. In trying to understand it, you run up against the limitations of thought and hopefully tap into a direct and nonverbal awareness of reality. Koans plumb a dimension deeper than the five senses that keep us attached to things, that keep us attached to conditions and concepts, preventing us from being aware and resilient in the face of challenge and change. You know, we typically intellectualize and conceptualize our life, both personally and professionally. And when we do that, we shackle ourselves to concepts. Concepts can seem so real that our mind gets confused about whether it is a concept or an absolute. These concepts harden like concrete, keeping our minds trapped and our forward momentum stuck. You know, we may classify or conceptualize certain people as, oh, that person's trouble, or that person's wrong, or that person's bad. We may categorize a task or activity as beneath us or too hard. We may look to escape our job because the, the company that our department is in is behind the times. So once that concept has repeated in our thoughts long enough, then that person is trouble for us. And that project 
is impossible, and the company is useless and of no value, even though we receive a paycheck from them. Our minds have become victims to those perspectives and we freeze, you know, that person or project or company into a characterization, a concept rather than a living being who is capable of change. And of course, no task can ever, I mean, no task can ever really be beneath us. If a task is a part of our job, or if a task is part of our family life and it needs doing, and it's our responsibility in life or in, in our job to do that, then that's our responsibility. It's not beneath us. It is what we're supposed to do. Or did we make it? Did we make the company not capable by giving up on the company? Did we make the person bad by giving up on the person? Essentially abandoning any help we can offer? The first koan I shared is Every Day is a Good Day by Unman. Unman said, I do not ask you about 15 days ago, but about 15 days hence. Come, say a word about this. And since none of the monks answered, he answered for them. He said, Every day is a good day. So in my article I wrote, is every day a good day? Oh, I can hear the resounding chorus now. No, you answer. Every day is certainly not a nice or easy day, as in compared to a bad day. Every day is the absolute day. It is the only day you have right now. So that's good. It doesn't repeat. It's brand new and fresh. The goodness of today is that it is the absolute day you have to live right now. Whether it's rain, shine, sickness, health, angry boss or promotion, overdue project with a drop-dead delivery date of today, or a project extension. The day itself is not bad or good. All days are the absolute days. All days are good days. Only the concepts we hold about circumstances as bad, the rain or the angry boss or our expectations, sunshine and a promotion, make us label the day as bad in comparison to our expectations. See, we are the ones that turn our days into bad days. The day has nothing to do with it. Yesterday, or last week is only a reference. Tomorrow or next week is only a hope. So rain or sunshine, both are natural conditions. An angry boss or promotion is only a circumstance. It is up to us to not freeze those conditions or circumstances of life into a reality that can't change. Because when we do, we are the ones that have made our days bad days. You know, whether you agree with this talk that I wrote in this article, that every day is a good day or not, you know, it's not really about thinking about it. It's not really about agreeing or disagreeing. But really, it's about living in it, being in it. 
even if that it is a question. And even if you don't know. That's the deal with Zen koans. It's all about I don't know. Getting comfortable with I don't know makes us feel very insecure, unworthy, unknowledgeable, ignorant, but yet that's really how we are at the heart of it all. I don't know. You know, I know you've all heard the the koan, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Or show me your original face, the face you had before your parents would, were born. So I think when we hear those koans, most people think of them as riddles. You know, I often teach or facilitate the course on, on the book I talked about by Gyome Sensei, um, Zen Koans for our Bright Dawn Lay Ministry classes. And it's fascinating for me to see how different people react to a study of koans. You know, some people have a visceral dislike to the study. And others fall gently into the place where not knowing is perfectly comfortable to them. So an example of some of the com comments I've received in papers from lay ministry students have stuck in my mind as perfect partners to the study of koans. And they can actually be koans themselves. Here's a, just a few I'm going to throw out as quotes. One, koans make fools of us. Koans untie our shoelaces. I haven't been able to make sense of a koan yet. Befriend the dragon. Aren't those great? One of my favorite writers, teachers, and as someone who never fails to inspire me to go deeper than mere concepts is John Tarrant. He is a Zen teacher, psychotherapist, writer, and poet who studied koans for more than 30 years. He directs the Pacific Zen Institute and is the author of several books, including The Light Inside the Dark, Zen Soul and the Spiritual Life, and Bring Me the, Bring Me the Rhinoceros and Other Zen Koans That Will Save Your Life. You know, similar to how I described how different people react to a study of koans, John Tarrant writes from an article published in the Shambhala Sun magazine in 2003. I will quote off and on from throughout this podcast from this article. Um, so first quote is, those who have used koans have described them as a poetic technology for bringing about awakening a painful but effective gate into the consciousness of the Buddha, an easy method of integrating awakening into our everyday life, the, or the most frustrating thing they have ever done, or an appalling waste of time, or a tyranny perpetrated by Zen masters. Well, as he said, you get the idea about Cohen's Opinions differed. Essentially, as Tarrant writes, they either suit you or they don't. And that's what I find in the students that I've dealt with in the lay ministry class. But Tarrant took that as a sort of a challenge to like push harder, right? Working to present them in ways very different that they, the same way that they have been taught over and over again since the 12th century. He worked to bring the same innovative spirit of Cohen presentation but in a way that's more available or suitable to our current cultural sensibilities. He writes, 
quote, although Collins have made it into popular culture as riddles and wisecracks, they aren't all mystery and strangeness. They are intended to have an outcome, to work, to be effective in relieving unhappiness, and just as importantly, to be amusing. Though they have heroic moments, Cohen's encourage the notion that the comic is truer and more present to live inside than the epic. Cohen's, he says, seems true to life because they rely on uncertainty, surprise, and imagination. They depend on the inconceivable, which is the largest part of life. And at the same time, if Cohen's leap They do so from a very specific place. They depend on the everyday world of the kitchen and the garden, and they depend on precise language. In this way, they're like art. They encourage you to move beyond your self-imposed limits by offering a fresh view of things you have already seen or think you have already seen, unquote. I love that sentence. They depend on the inconceivable, which is the largest part of life. At the same time, if they leap, they take off from a specific place, depending on the everyday world of the kitchen and the garden and on precise language. And this is exactly why I think koans belong to the world of everyday Buddhism, belong to the world of everyday practice that some of my listeners may be trying to do. The world of the kitchen, the world of the garden, and the world of paperwork, colleagues, bosses, and meetings. See, the thing is, is that we're stuffed with concepts and snared by thinking. So they can't, we can't really see what's in front of us most of the time in the kitchen or the garden or the desk or out our window or on a familiar walk around the neighborhood. You know, I just took a brief walk around our backyard with our dogs, picking up their poop. While they explored the world with their noses, frequently stopping to sniff the air for something completely hidden from me, I noticed four baby toads and a pretty fast-paced white hairy caterpillar, which I then looked up, didn't know what it was, but I looked it up. It's a white hickory tussock moth caterpillar that is native to Canada and the Northeast and the South Central U.S. So see, in a few peaceful moments of a leisurely walk in the yard, I found surprise. How did I find it? I was open to seeing what popped up in front of me. I wasn't focused on this podcast or that I had to fertilize the garden later or what was on my schedule for tomorrow, but just what was in front of me, four toads and a hairy white caterpillar, and it surprised me. See, this is what John Tarrant writes about koans. They contain uncertainty, surprise, and amusement. Tarrant came to using koans as a practice while meditating in the rainforests of Queensland, Australia. He wrote about koan practice as compared to typical meditation practice, and I'll share that with you in a minute, because I think it is useful for listeners, not because every, because everyone doesn't always respond to linear instructions. You know, meditation 
tends to have always a package of instructions, no matter what kind of meditation it is. Some of us, even those who aren't artists or those who aren't poets, but maybe engineers, think like poets. See, poets don't always think linearly, step by step. To me, poems are always koans. To read or write poems, and I've done this for years, you must always make a leap from the known to the unknown. And you have to, well, you don't have to, but you tend to combine things that don't belong together. You try to express feelings without using traditional concepts. And all of that stuff, that going beyond what are your typical conceptual boundaries can be surprising to yourself and to anyone you express it to as a poem or a koan. You know, you can't try to write and you can't read another's poetry without that spirit of unknowing because you can't know the next thing that will come up in the poet's mind or in your mind if you don't have a model. And if you're creating a poem from scratch, you don't have a model. As Tarrant says, quote unquote, some sort of leap is needed. He writes further, quote, Koans seem to fit my mind the way it was, as opposed to the way I wished it were. Most meditation instructions employ sort of an engineering metaphor, and my mind was not very efficient at being an engine. In the engineering model, everything is nicely laid out in stages. Meditation instructions were intended to be a map of escape routes from the mind's prison. But I knew that I was often reading that map with an inmate's consciousness. I might think I was taking down the prison walls when I was really just doing interior design to make my cell more comfy. Some sort of leap was needed. Hmm, I thought. Traditional meditation training makes sense. The steps follow one two, three, four, it's rational, it's serious, it knows where it wants to go, so obviously it won't work for me. A koan, though, seemed to be a brief art form that, regardless of your opinions about it, tended to rearrange the world. You know, in the koan universe, a creative leap isn't one, two, three, four, six. It's much more like one, two, three, four, Rhinoceros, <laughs> it doesn't allow the sanity defense and it doesn't discriminate, discriminate against those with attention deficit, unquote. So what do you think? Does one, two, three, four rhinoceros make any sense to you? Of course it doesn't. But does it make you smile? Does it relax the tension in your shoulders and focus on the sound of words or the images the imagination. And I spent more than a year in spiritual conversation with Robert Dalglish, a spiritual director and former senior pastor at the Trinity Communion Church, a charismatic Episcopal church in Rochester. We were an odd couple. Uh, he reached out to me because he wanted to know about the more about the non-duality in Buddhism, always being immersed as a Christian father and pastor. And I got to explore his sense of what Christianity meant to him in a very 
much more of a creative, artistic way than I was used to. So Robert wrote and taught a lot about imagination as a portal to a deeper experience with life and as something we have distanced ourselves from in our 24-7 perceived surety of information surrounding us by our smartphones and computers. Think about it. How often do you use imagination? Isn't it awesome to even imagine a rhinoceros in the middle of counting? The emphasis of Dharma practice, and especially the Zen form of Buddhist practice, is direct experience. Like my bumping into a traveling white hickory tussock moth caterpillar while picking up poop. What was that? It was a direct realization of what? I don't know. It was a realization of I don't know. But I wouldn't have had the realization of I don't know if I wasn't open to the direct experience. So the only way to learn about koans is to experience them. Master Dogen said that the koan is like a sharp lancet that you turn toward yourself to pierce through the bag of skin the idea of a separate self. You know, I'm sure I'll hear from some that you shouldn't take up koan practice without a teacher. Yeah, I've heard that. And I heard it for years in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. But I think we need to drop some of these, okay, I'll say it, outdated, hyper-rigid ideas of, you know, Buddhist practice that prevents us from bringing them into the kitchen, the garden, the bathroom. The bathroom is a a place our sensei, Reverend Koyo Kabosi, has given us practices for, like toilet gasho. See, Tarant wrote that if he had followed the advice of not taking up Cohen practice without a teacher, it'd be like him being limited to playing cricket in the bush with the kangaroos. There were no teachers to be found for him. So he chose a Cohen and he started to keep company with it, is the way he put it. He spent six years with the same Cohen. Six years, he says, with the same Cohen without an instruction manual. He wrote, quote, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what the outcome would look like. And there was no one to ask. There was a nakedness nakedness about this approach that seemed right. My meditation was not contaminated by my prejudices, unquote. See, the, this is the thing about Cohen's. It's the, it is that whatever you think is the right answer or approach, and whatever you think a Cohen is, the Cohen will immediately flip it on its head. Like this one, you know, what is the Buddha, someone asked. Three pounds of flax, said the teacher. Another teacher said, this very heart and mind is Buddha. Someone checked his answer by asking him again, what is Buddha? And he answered, not mind, not Buddha. The Coens took away what you believed, but they didn't put something else in its place. What is the Buddha, asked yet another student. And the teacher said, dried shit stick. Remember, at the heart of Buddhism, at the heart of Dharma, is that we experience suffering. But that suffering comes from our own thinking, right? We've talked about this. Change your perceptions, change your life. 
So then there's the meditation and mindfulness practice to change up your thinking or slow down your thinking or just be aware of your thinking. And Cohen practice is the same, but as Tarrant wrote, quote, with the Cohen, you get to listen to the mind's conversation before you try to change it up. Even without adding evaluations of beauty, the internal conversation is always happening. And it defines the world you live in and who you are. And when you do listen, it's hard not to be amused. Because while the conversation has an immense variety, it has only one real interest, which is what about little me? Yeah, that constant dialogue in our head. And I don't know, you know, it is a dialogue, isn't it? If you've done any meditation, it's a dialogue. I always wonder, who am I dialoguing with? I think that is a koan that some people practice with. Who is hearing or who is doing this thinking? This is how you get to change your perceptions. A Cohen looks at the usual conversation in your mind, interrupts it, lets you giggle about it a little bit. And it's in that giggling, it's in that taking it lightly that your attachment to the little me Tarrant wrote about or your elusive self is lessened because you start laughing at it. You know, there's something wonderful freeing about playing with the ridiculous or the surprising. Kids know this innately. We're the ones that take it away from them. They love to be goofy. There was a kid on our street. I'll, I'll never forget this. It, was, it, it was, had to be 15 years ago. And he was on the corner of a... a we have our street is a circle, and I'm right at the corner. He would stand out in his front yard, and every time you walk by, he'd say, You want some poop and pee? Every time, you want some poop and pee? And then giggle. You know, he was a typical, I don't know, three, four, five year old that would love, you know, if you say poop, pee, or any kind of bodily function. But there was something about it that struck at the heart of everyday life, and it never failed to make me laugh. Never. So there is something wonderfully freeing about this, the ridiculous and the surprising. You know, the koan is typically a question. Hey, you want some poop and pee? But sometimes that question itself makes no sense. People ask us questions all the time about what their particular issue is. What should I do? Well, should I do this? Should I do that? And should I do this? Should I do that? And you know, most of the time, what they're looking for from you is an answer that they have already formed in their mind. Sort of like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Or as Tarrant put it, you know, redecorating your prison cell to help you to help the questioner rid his particular flavor of suffering on that day. But what makes a question a koan is when it takes you farther than you intended, beyond what you already know, or beyond what you expect your answer to tell you, to the edge of the unknown, and then maybe beyond into the unknown. If you refuse the answers made up of what you can already, already conceive of, your question just might lead you to a place of enlightenment or peace, right? If I thought myself, what would be the answer, do you want some poop or pee? I might say, well, of course I don't want any poop or pee. Or you shouldn't be talking about poop or pee to people who walk by. Or maybe 
What if I thought to myself, maybe I should say yes, just like in the in the no koan, the famous moo koan about the dog. Does the dog have Buddha nature? No. Maybe if I said, if he said, you want some poop or pee? I could say, yes. See, working with koans are not necessarily about achieving enlightenment or even about being more peaceful. But they're much more about letting the world come to me, letting the world come to us in whatever shape it takes and trying not to solidify it as a concept. Letting that little boy ask me every day if I wanted some poop or pee without thinking about why his parents let him do that. Why didn't they keep him inside? Why didn't they tell him not to say poop or pee to strangers? And believe me, this is one hard job for someone like me. You know, letting the world come to me in whatever shape it wants. I'm a fixer and a judger. But you know, Cohen practice helps to make me less that way. See, we try hard to understand koans. That's the problem. We circle them, grab up them with their concepts, and yet they run away. But yet, there we are, exposed for who we are. Ignorant beings trying to grasp what is right in front of us and make it into something else with our ignorant grasping natures. You know, the advice that I remember the most when working with koans is that we need to let the koan come to you, just like we have to let life come to us. We can't reach for it. Tarrant shares that through his work with koans, he stopped trying to improve himself. The koan, he said, made me more interested in my actual life and less interested in an ideal or spiritual life. I think he sums it up beautifully when he said, quote, there's a sense of staying with things and of commitment as in my marriage, but at the same time, there's not that fear of what would happen if something didn't work. And if I'm thinking something is not working, it's probably not working. When I rest in what I don't know, I stick up for myself. I don't know. Hey, cool. The Cohen universe is not normative nor prescriptive. It's not fundamentalist. Since all the stories you tell about life, even the ones about enlightenment, are still just stories. He continues to say, there is no doctrine, just method, which is judged by its effectiveness and maybe by its beauty. The method trusts the basic loving possibility in humans as well as the uncertainty that everything rests on. So I will end this podcast with three areas to help you start a Cohen practice, and I encourage you to give it a shot. Number one, I suggest purchasing the book Zen Koans by Gyome Kabose as a way to practice. And another good book is, of course, John Tarrant's Bring Me the Rhinoceros and Other Zen Koans That Will Save Your Life. I will provide links to both on my webpage. Number two, but even without a book, you can begin reflecting on koans through John Tarrant's websites, which I will post links to through um, links to uh, on, that I put on my website, and also learning a, some about koans by the 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 articles or blog posts that I wrote for LinkedIn. I will po- post those four posts 
on my website, and I hope to add more as I continue to work with them. And number three, to close, I will share John Tarrant's seven things to notice about Cohen's. Number one, Cohen's show you that you can depend on creative moves. Happiness can arrive out of nowhere. Number two, Cohen's encourage doubt and curiosity. You can have any religion and use Cohen's. You can have no religion and use Cohen's. Cohen's don't take away painful beliefs and put in their place positive beliefs. Cohen's just take away the painful beliefs and so provide freedom. What you do with that freedom is up to you. Number three, Cohen's rely on uncertainty as a path to happiness. If you set off after happiness thinking that you know what you need, you will always end up with something that meets that need. But the problem there is that it is like painting the prison of your unhappiness a different color. Cohen's don't support that interior decoration project. They demolish the walls. Number four, Cohen's will undermine your reasons and explanations. Your reasons for happiness can be taken away. Your, 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 your family, your spouse, your child, your job, and even your reason itself can fail like in dementia. But Cohen's open a happiness for no good reason. The happiness exists before the reason. Number five, Cohen's can lead you to see life as funny rather than tragic. Six, Cohen's will change your idea of who you are, and this will require courage. Everyone thinks they want happiness, and I agree with Tarrant here from my experience as a coach. He says some people would rather keep their stories about who they are and about what is impossible than to be happy. And boy, I see that in with my coaching practice. This is so true. But Tehran adds, happy, happiness is not an add-on to what you already are. It requires you to be a different person from the one you set off seeking. And his number seven, Cohen's uncover a hidden kindness in life as part of the foundation of the mind, not something that is cultivated in the mind. When you unpack all of your motives and all of other people's motives and get to the bottom of things, you find love. Or as my coaching teacher, Kane Ramsey says, there is no such thing as bad intention. Nobody wants to screw up, but we all still do, even though we had other intentions. An individual will always make the best choice they can according to the information they have available to them at the time. So I invite you to wander into the world of Cohen's, get lost, play a little bit. It just might surprise you. Actually, I know it will surprise you, but it will also might delight you and very possibly change you. Let me know. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining me. As usual, if you like this podcast, please consider supporting the work through ratings, through reviews, or, or a donation on my website at everyday-buddhism.com.
everyday-buddhism.com. That's everyday-buddhism.com. Until next time, keep making your everydays better. <laughs> <laughs>